Gospel of John, the second chapter, the first 11 verses, page 1,222 in the Pew Bible, page 1,222, John chapter 2, the first 11 verses. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, our text concludes with the statement that this miracle of Jesus was the first of the signs that Jesus performed by which his glory was displayed. The miracle is called a sign, a sign that points to something, a a sign that points to something beyond itself. It's not just an amazing trick designed to make us go, ooh, ah, uh, isn't that interesting, isn't that fascinating? No, this this is a sign that has a meaning. And, of course, John tells us what that meaning is. It it points to the glory of Jesus Christ. It, it shows us his glory. It shows us the glorious Jesus Christ. And seeing Jesus is what causes people to believe in him. It says there that they saw his glory and they believed in him. Their faith was strengthened in him. And uh, so we too want to look at this sign and see the glory of Jesus. But it doesn't point to merely glory in a general sense, in a vague, uh, nebulous sense. It, it points to particular aspects of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's designed to, to show us certain aspects of Jesus that are indeed glorious. In particular, it shows us here the glory of his person. It shows us who he is, and who he is is something glorious. And it shows us something of his mission, 
a mission which is also glorious. And so I want to look at this glorious act of Jesus by which he revealed his glory to see something of the glory of his person and and something of the glory of his work. And what it shows us about the glory of his person is that Jesus is a bridegroom and a master of the feast. Now, why do I say that? Well, we see in this event Jesus stepping into those two roles. He steps into the role of the bridegroom. We learn from the master of the feast who is at this wedding that it is the bridegroom's responsibility to supply the wine. He goes to the bridegroom and he says, normally uh, the bridegroom uh, brings out the good wine first. And then when everybody has had uh, too much to drink and won't notice the difference, he brings out the inferior wine. But you saved the best till now. And from that remark, we learn that in that culture, unlike our culture, but in that culture, it was the custom for the bridegroom to supply the wine. Well, what do we see Jesus doing in this story, in this event? We see Jesus stepping into the role of the bridegroom. The bridegroom here has done a poor job, and so Jesus steps up and he does what a bridegroom is supposed to do. He, su- he supplies wine, and he supplies good wine, good wine in large quantity. He, he's really a good bridegroom in that regard, in that he's stepping in to fill up what uh, the bridegroom, the other bridegroom has failed to do. He steps up and, and does the work of the bridegroom. But he not only does the work of the bridegroom, he also does the work of the uh, master of the feast. Uh, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he says. Well, that, that's, that's the master of the feast job, is to direct the servants. Uh, and Jesus steps up to that also, and he starts directing the servants, telling them what to do. He's doing the work of the master of the feast. And when the wine is made... He doesn't say to the servants, now take the wine and give it to the guests. He says, take some wine and bring it to the master of the feast. He he doesn't want to bypass the master of the feast. He's saying to to the servants, uh, you know, communicate to him that there's more wine, that there's there's wine ready to be served. He's he's coming behind the the master of the feast, standing alongside of him, encouraging him. He says, "Uh, I've got your back. I'm, I'm assisting you. I'm, I'm the assistant master of the, the feast here, uh, enabling you to do your job better. And so Jesus uh, steps into that role also, the role of uh, directing the servants and, and uh, undergirding the master of the feast. Jesus is showing us that he's a bridegroom and he's a master of the feast. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus want us to see him in these, in these roles as, as bridegroom and as master of the feast? Well, I hope it's not a surprise to you that Jesus once taught a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All weddings foreshadow the great wedding feast of the son. The king, God the Father, is preparing a great wedding feast for his son. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, we read, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And a little later, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A holy city, a city of God. That's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride, and, and Christ is the bridegroom. And the kingdom of God is a wedding feast that the king has prepared for his son. In Mark chapter 2, some uh, people come up to Jesus and ask why his disciples don't fast. They say, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. That's the teaching of Ephesians chapter 5, where Jesus, uh, uh, through his servant Paul, says, Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And wives, submit to your husband as the church submits to, to Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, Now this is a mystery. Now that word mystery is, is, apply, is applied there to marriage, but it's also applied to the gospel. The gospel is the mystery also in Scripture, the great mystery. And, and the reason the gospel is called a mystery and the reason marriage is called a mystery is because it's, it's something which you can't figure out on your own. Mysteries have to be revealed in order to be understood. You read a, a mystery novel or a mystery movie or whatever, uh, you know, there's the great reveal at the end where everyone is surprised because you, you can't figure it out on your own. That's what makes a good mystery is that the author has to tell you what it means. Uh, the gospel is a mystery because left to ourselves, we would assume that if we're to be saved, we have to do it ourselves. We have to earn our way into heaven. But lo and behold, God has revealed the mystery of the gospel that that we're saved by grace, by the glorious grace that, that God became a man and took our place and lived the life that we should, uh, should have lived and died the death that we deserved. To die. We never would have thought of that. But that's the mystery. But marriage also is a mystery, which means that it's not what we, we might think it is. It's, it's more than that. It's not just about companionship. It's not just about procreation. It's it's about the relationship between Christ and the church. That's what marriage is really all about. He says, this is a mystery. This is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage was designed by God, not just as a, a, a way for humans to find fulfillment and to, to advance civilization and so forth. He designed it to, to reveal his desire to enter into a covenant of companionship and love with us. Uh, at least a half a dozen different times in the Old Testament, God is married to Israel. That imagery is used, that Israel is God's bride. And, and in the New Testament, that is fleshed out that, that Christ is the, is the bride of the church, the bridegroom, and uh, the church is the bride. And uh, the message here is that... Uh, God is, is calling us not just to be his children, but, but to be married, to live in a, in a relationship of love. Another way of thinking of this, uh, the lesson of this first miracle is to say that Jesus has come to bring joy, 
bring great joy. That's what marriage is a celebration of, of joy. It's a celebration of love, love that brings great joy. The wine is used in Scripture as a, a symbol of joy. We read uh, Psalm 104, verse 15, God made wine to gladden the heart of man. And, and when God wants to create a festive event, He brings forth good wine. We read from Isaiah 25 already, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Wine on the leaves means wine well, well-refined, good wine. And uh, it's going to be a joyous feast. God has, has come to bring joy to his people. I have come that you might have joy, says Jesus, and that your joy might be full. Jesus creates wine, and he creates it in large, he creates good wine, and he creates it in large quantity, not to encourage us to get drunk. That's not what this is about. The Bible is quite clear that that drunkenness is a sin and that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. But rather, he creates wine, good wine in great quantity to show that the, the, the joy of the kingdom is a, a great and wonderful joy, an all-consuming joy. Therefore, the scriptures say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. For the kingdom of God is in you and consists of righteousness and peace and joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is all about. This, this is what Jesus wants you to know, first of all, that he is the bridegroom and the church is his bride and he has come to bring us into a joyous, intimate, loving relationship that lasts forever. You know, some people think that uh, the unmarried are missing out on the best thing that life has to offer. And uh, what a shame that, that so-and-so never married. And uh, some married people are greatly depressed because uh, they can't experience what is supposed to be the, the ultimate thing in, in life, uh, the marriage relationship. But, but that's not the case. Marriage is, is just for this life. It's, it's temporary. It points to something better, something which everyone who is called to faith in Christ, is privileged to experience the joy of an intimate, loving relationship, a covenant of companionship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our bridegroom, and we are his bride. And even the best of human marriages is nothing compared to the love and the fulfillment that we find in Jesus Christ. But now this, this miracle... Is more than just showing us the glory of Jesus' person, that he is the great bridegroom and master of the feast. It's also showing us something of the, the glory of his work. And, and we see that in a number of ways in this passage. First of all, we see it in, in a matter that is a little bit difficult to understand in verse 4, where Jesus addresses his, his mother as woman. Um, that sounds so cold and harsh. But take note... Mary doesn't take offense here, and she doesn't take offense later on when Jesus again addresses her by that same title, woman, when he's hanging on the cross. And when he sees his mother and he sees the disciple whom he loves uh, and says to his mother, woman, behold your son, and says to the disciple whom he loves, uh, behold your mother. And uh, from that moment, Mary went to live in that disciple's home. 
That was a very compassionate thing for Jesus to do when he has nails in his hands and nails in his feet, when he's suffering the agony of being forsaken by God. Nevertheless, he has compassion on his mother and provides for her temporal well-being by entrusting her care to his beloved disciple. She didn't take offense that he dressed her as woman there. She doesn't take offense here. The NIV translation says, dear woman, to convey that this is a term of tenderness, and and it is, the word dear isn't there, but they they have the right idea. This is a a tender, affectionate term that Jesus uses with regard to his mother. But why does he use it? Why does he not call her mother? Well, he, he has to teach her that their family relationship, the fact that she's his mother, is not what's going to save her. She knows that he's the savior of the world, and she's not allowed to think Well, of course he'll save me because I'm his mother. No, she has to learn that the family relationship isn't going to save her. What's going to save her is if she learns to humble herself, confess her sins, and trust in him as her savior, not trust in him as a son to take care of him. She gives him another son. He gives her another son to take care of that sort of thing. He has to have a different relationship with her. She has to learn to uh, look to him as her Lord and and not as her son. Uh, You know, this undercuts uh, one of the great prayers, well, popular prayers, I wouldn't call it a great prayer, popular prayer in Christendom, the the Hail Mary. Uh, You know, Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners now and at the time of our death. Uh, A good part of Christendom prays that prayer quite a bit, and they pray to Mary, the mother of God. Hail Mary, mother of God, pray for us now and at the time of our death. They think that because she's the mother of God, she has a special uh, influence on him, and they're counting on that relationship to help them, that because Mary is God's mother uh, and because uh, uh, Jesus uh, has a special thing for his mother, that uh, if we pray to Mary, that that relationship will benefit us. And Jesus taught Mary that her family relationship is of no benefit to her in that regard. And of course, you have to learn the same thing as well, that, that you won't be saved because of your family connections. Uh, just because you were born into a covenant family or born into a family where several of your ancestors were ministers or elders in the church, that, that somehow it's just assumed and automatic that that you're going to be saved by Jesus because of your family connections. The covenant never saved anyone apart from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. A covenant never saved anyone except you humble yourself, confess your sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You too can't just assume on the basis of family connections that everything is covered and taken care of. That's what Mary had to learn. But then Jesus goes on also to say now to her, you know, what, what business is this, this business of, of running out of wine? Why, why should this be my concern? My hour has not yet come. Well, what's he doing there? Well, this phrase, my hour, is one that John uses seven times in his gospel. Seven times Jesus refers to his hour. And John, when he writes this, is assuming that you're going to read the whole gospel 
and uh, see all seven instances of that and figure out what it is and then come back and, and read this again in the light of what you've learned about his hour. He doesn't explain it here, but he does explain it later on. And it becomes clear that Jesus' hour is uh, the hour of his death. He's referring to his suffering and death on the cross as that hour. Uh, He says in John 12, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I came to this hour. For this very purpose I came to this hour, uh, to suffer and die. And uh, why would Jesus, in the midst of this wedding, make reference to his hour, to his hour of suffering? Well, He's a young man. He's 30 years old. He's at a wedding. And he's in a culture where almost everybody gets married and where almost everybody is married before age 30. But he's still single. And he's at somebody else's wedding. Now, even in our culture, if you're 30 years old and you're not married, never married and you're attending somebody else's wedding, what might you be thinking about? You might be thinking, I wonder when my wedding's going to be. I wonder if I'm going to get married. And, of course, Jesus knows that he has a wedding coming up. Uh, He knows that that, that the kingdom of God can be compared to a a wedding banquet that a a king has prepared for his son. He knows that, that there is a bride being prepared for him. But he also knows that in order for that wedding to take place, he must endure his hour. That wedding will never happen if he doesn't suffer and he doesn't die. He's thinking, you know, yeah, uh, my mother's concerned that these people have joy at this wedding. And I've come to bring joy also. But in order for there to be joy at my wedding, you know, I have to suffer and die. That this is what he's thinking, I think, is confirmed by the fact that uh, the water jars that he uses were water jars for cleansing. Now, that's a detail that John, the gospel writer, brings out, which is seemingly, you know, there's these water jars. Why, do, why does he tell us? The normal purpose for those jars. Well, the only reason he tells us the normal purpose for those jars, that these are jars used to hold water for ceremonial cleansing, is because it has significance. You know, in in Mosaic law, there were all kinds of things that could make you ceremonially unclean, touching a dead body or this or that or the other thing. There are all kinds of ways in which people became unclean. And one of the chief ways by which you were made clean was to be washed with water. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 9 says in Mosaic Law there were various ceremonial washings. And in the the Greek of Hebrews 9, it's various ceremonial baptismos, various ceremonial baptisms. And these water jars held the water for those various ceremonial baptisms by which people were cleansed and made ceremonially clean. And now Jesus says, fill them with water. Fill those jars that are normally for ceremonial cleansing. Fill them with water. And he changes the water in the wine and then into wine. And then he takes from those jars and, and brings it to the guests. What's this all about? Well, 
wine in Scripture is very closely associated with blood. In the book of Genesis, early in the Bible, Genesis 49, wine is called the blood of grapes. Wine is is blood, blood of grapes. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a cup of wine, a cup of wine, and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. He looks at that wine and he says, you're to, see, you're to see in that wine my blood. It represents my blood. Now from the jars that came the water of cleansing comes the wine. The wine that will cleanse us from our sins. And what cleanses us from our sins? The blood of Jesus Christ. We have redemption through his blood. Says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 7, 1 verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And it says in Hebrews 9, regarding those ceremonial baptisms, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In the book of Revelation, he is described as the one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. His blood is what cleanses us from our sins. The saints in heaven are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Christ. Moses took water and turned it into blood as a sign of the curse. Now Jesus takes water and turns it into wine, wine which cleanses, wine which represents his blood, wine which represents joy because it cleanses us from our sins. But now Jesus, in order to drink wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb, our wedding supper with him, in order for him to drink wine at that time, he must first drink the cup of God's infinite wrath. He had to suffer utter and complete forsakenness to make possible the joy of our future uh, celebration. Jesus is saying to his mother, Mother, I'm not here to solve a catering crisis. Don't trouble me with catering crises. That's, that's not what I'm all about. But he does use the occasion to teach us that what he is all about is bringing us joy. Joy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in order to bring us that joy, he must endure his hour. He must shed his blood so that we might be washed clean. What a glorious thing. That God, in His great love, should give us His Son to be a sacrifice for our sins, to shed His blood, to give His life, so that we might be washed clean and enter into the fullness of the joy of our salvation. You know, this text begins by saying, on the third day. And a few weeks ago, I alerted to you the fact that John, in the first chapter, begins describing a sequence of days. 
He describes Jesus as the Lord of creation. He begins his gospel with the same words as the first words of the book of Genesis in the beginning. And then John also describes a series of seven days. And the third day brings us, because there were four days already described, the third day now brings us to the seventh day. And on the seventh day is is the last day, the day of culmination, the day of fulfillment. And on the seventh day, there is a marriage supper. And Jesus acts as the bridegroom. Jesus acts as the Lord of the feasts. What Jesus is doing with his first miracle, his commencement miracle, is showing us the future. He's showing us where he's taking us. He's showing us what everything is going to be all about. He didn't just come to keep you from going to hell. He didn't just come so that you could have happy days here on earth. He came to enter into a covenant of companionship with you, an intimate relationship of love, a marriage relationship, a marriage relationship which shall be consummated when He comes again on the clouds in great glory and brings in the fullness of our salvation on the last day, the seventh day. We will have the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will celebrate our love for Him and His love for us throughout all eternity. That's what's in store for you who see Him, who see His glory, and like the disciples, believe in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this first of Jesus' miracles by which He displayed His glory. The glory that He is, the glorious Bridegroom and Lord of the Feast, who is preparing for us with the Father the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Indeed, we are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Help us to hear that invitation.